I'm excited. So here's the idea. We're going to build the big picture gospel by walking through the grand narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden to the mountain of Zion. And in doing so, we will develop a biblical worldview. Uh, I'm Stephen Buckley, and I want to encourage you that if you stick with it and stay the course, it's likely that you will never look upon the pages of Scripture in the same way. Not because I have anything new to bring, but because, in my opinion, mainstream Christianity holds a tunnel vision view of the gospel. I, I once asked a church leader, where does history begin for you? And it stumped him. A few years ago, I uh, sat with a good number of church leaders and I asked the question, where is Jesus now? And there was silence. Once uh, I witnessed a leader um, ask a room of about 50 weathered Christians uh, who were from all over the Western world, this was in the Middle East, what is the gospel of the kingdom? And after resuming from group discussion, there was not one coherent biblical answer and my heart just sunk if we don't understand the start of the story where our savior resides or what the gospel of the kingdom is we have a major problem political commentator douglas murray said this we have been living through a period of more than a quarter of a century in which all our grand narratives about about our existence have collapsed in the latter part of the 20th century entered the postmodern era defined by its suspicion towards grand narratives. There's been a systemic spiritual attack on the biblical grand narrative and to no surprise if Christians can't follow the overarching storyline they have no basis for their faith which in turn means that the context of the cross is confused, the driver of discipleship is misplaced, and our hope and grasp of the return of Jesus is spiritually bloated and fluffy and, and labelled as a distraction. Now, don't worry if you don't follow in a moment, especially if you are a new Christian. I wouldn't expect you to be familiar with some of the words and phrases you will do. Uh, but first off, let me use a bit of artistic license to paint you a very real picture of a heavenly scene about the time of Jesus's first coming. Jesus, the high priest, stands amid the great temple complex in the height of the heavens. Envisage the surrounding paradisal gardens drumming with life, layered with myriads of angelic creatures and the assigned saints who have anticipated the moment. The flagrant aroma is pleasing to the Lord, the divine counsel poised, the thunders of instruments pause. Who could dare utter a single tone, just as the powers of darkness would be bound at the lips for this interval? Having ascended from the tomb garden, the eternal high priest enters the Holy of Holies before the Father, silently offering his own blood on the altar for the redemption of his people and kingdom. Seated above all, the Father sees the most precious, incorruptible blood of his own Son, which still stands there to this day. As Martin Dehan puts it, just as pure, just as potent, just as fresh as 2,000 years ago, pleading for us and prevailing for us. It is perfectly acceptable in the Father's sight. Unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus immediately takes his seat, exalted and enthroned at the right hand of the Father. His work was settled, his sacrifice once and for all. Now, though, he must return to the earth for 40 days to reveal his resurrected glory and speak about the coming kingdom of God. As we wonder in awe of the beauty and majesty of Christ, offering his blood to atone for our sin, one thing is certain. The debt has been paid, the engagement is on, and we eagerly wait for the bridegroom's return as redemption draws near. Something happened at the cross of Golgotha on the heavenly altar as Jesus took his seat. 
the reality of the promised kingdom was made possible, guaranteed by God's holy covenant, secured by the blood of Jesus. You and I patiently endure evil while placing our entire hope in the resurrection of the dead for the marriage of the Lamb within this future kingdom. Far beyond concluding the story, the rugged cross directs our hope towards the revelation of Jesus Christ at his second advent. The crucified king accomplished the rightful deeds to glorious kingship yet to be claimed, yet to be appropriated. Indeed, the full thrust of the Bible is, from start to finish, in a sense, eschatological, future-focused. Jesus is reigning as king in heaven, sovereign over all. Nonetheless, he is not yet ruling his kingdom in person on earth. While the kingdom has been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, it's yet to be inaugurated at the day of the Lord. The blood payment as propitiation for our sins two millennia past was the legal mechanism that triggered the countdown to the future messianic kingdom. The book of Daniel depicts that second coming that will usher in the kingdom as a rock thundering down to earth, the nations trembling as it shatters the wicked kingdoms. The gospel, friends, the gospel is far from fluffy. John Stott once said, I don't want an irreducible, minimal gospel. I want the whole gospel. Amen to that. Now, for the sake of teaching, Fundamentally, the grand narrative climaxes at two points, past and future, intrinsically connected. Jesus came and is coming again. Jesus died so that we may have eternal life. Now, to understand why Jesus died, we must reach the starting point to base the story and follow redemptive history that leads to the cross. Now, to understand how he died in the way he did to pay for our sin, we must grasp the story of Israel and how they considered atonement. Now, to understand the assurance of eternal life, we must understand what that meant in in the Jewish context of the day so that we can correctly orientate the story. And when we do that, the good news of the kingdom begins to come into focus. There's a, a continuous flow of the story throughout the Bible. The New Testament builds upon the storyline of the Old Testament. There's no dramatic shift in the storyline or, or reinterpretation of the blueprint for history. The expectation of the Old Testament does not evaporate in the New. The gospel is not just the books Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The gospel is threaded throughout the story of grace, the redemption of mankind and the earth by God's anointed son, Jesus. It's the story of the kingdom of God, universal and earthly, how God the heavenly father desires a beautiful bride for the son to rule and reign his mediatorial kingdom on earth. It does not stop at the cross or the tomb for that matter. It does not stop with the engagement. It's essentially a two-part series, but we've lost the second part from the pulpit. We've forgotten the wedding ceremony because we're drunk at the engagement party. (laughs) The gospel of the kingdom dominates much of Jesus's teaching. Um, Within the four gospels alone, the kingdom is spoken of 126 times in the ESV translation. The gospel and Indeed, kingdom is so freely on the tongues of of every Christian, propping up church life, mission, and personal praxis. It's at the heart of who we are. And yet this gospel of the kingdom has been butchered and diminished to a westernized, Gentile-suited, sugar-coated soundbite of God loves you, of which the apostles, or Jesus, ever preached. Now, As an introduction today, firstly, let's look at what went wrong. How is our framework twisted? Then we will focus in on two key components, uh, one we kicked out and the other we turned inside out. And finally, we'll observe the example the apostles left for us uh, by taking a holistic approach to the gospel. So where did it all go wrong? (laughs) Four words, did God really say? Satan asked Eve. It's the oldest trick in the book and is still the most successful in appealing to our pride today. When Christians question the word of God in in a fashion that flagrantly opposes the plain reading, they are falling into the same 
old worldly trap leading to a watered down, a cherry picked gospel, frequently surfaced with good intentions, yet subtly restructuring the foundations of the message and invariably presenting symptoms of self-exaltation. Now, having said that, this isn't a finger-pointing exercise, right? Um, I'm going to step on most toes here, but I'm not interested in a blame game. Um, that's not going to help anyone. Uh, as well as pride, there are, there are in fact all kinds of reasons. There are churches up and down the country uh, with good people in them who have inherited bad westernized theology and practices. But I'm going to be unapologetically honest. Here's what we've done. Let me show you. I don't know if you can see that. There's a timeline, creation, the covenants, the cross, and, and roughly here, here we are. This is what we've done. Um, we've ended up with that. <laughs> I don't know if you can see that. Now, please don't be offended. Um, let me explain. A popular twist begins with origins. If Satan can get you off on the wrong foot, you will remain off balance. We've stretched the biblical timeline by a 2.3 million multiple of its length. 13.8 billion divided by 6,000 to fit the Darwinian evolutionary framework. Imagine the timeline. Imagine 2.3 million more of these in a line with life forms beginning a 750,000 multiple before this. That is one way to confuse people. Rebranded to a theistic evolution, a progressive evolution, seriously undermining the foundations of the message, reducing the creation account to a psychological lesson and the global flood to a fairy tale for kids. And we're going to show it's unscientific, it's unbiblical, and it's saturated in rotten fruit. Now, one of the reasons Christians live such messed up lives is because they don't understand the, the divine creation order of all things against the, the backdrop of the current chaos and the coming kingdom that will set it right. And therefore, they have no framing reference to base a correct Christian life. Now, in connection, we have a little understanding of the formation of the universe. Ancient uh, classical Greek philosophy remains deeply entrenched within the church, reinterpreting God's word with a, a super spiritual, everything's a metaphor lens, playing havoc with the framework of faith. The empire of uh, Alexander the Great covered the biblical known work world, uh, the Middle East, Egypt, Persia, all the way east as far as the borders of what we call uh, India and China today. And the demonically influenced Socrates taught Plato and then came Aristotle and this Hellenistic philosophy was, was carried with the Greek empire. And this pagan Greek thinking began to influence the worldview of the early church. And it's had a profound impact on Western thought since. So today, the, the church is partially immersed in this Platonic view. We read, we read the Bible with a Greek mindset rather than uh, the Jewish apocalyptic worldview of the biblical authors. It drastically alters the way that we view reality, such as the dwelling place of God, the idea of the supernatural as if it were a separate dimension from the natural, a kind of a dualism between spirit and, and matter. So we fail to comprehend how the material and spiritual aspects relate. The ancient Greek mindset seeks to, to move from this uh, material dimension, which is supposedly bad, to, to a spiritual dimension, which is, you know, which is good. And it, and it plays out on, on, a, on an eternal past and future time, which is cyclic. Now, in contrast, the biblical Jewish worldview sees material as good, uh, but corrupted because of the fall. Uh, time is linear from, from a starting point with distinctions between this age and the age to come. The doctrines of the heavens and hell uh, and Sheol Hades, uh, unsurprisingly, have been squeezed too. And we'll, we will explain uh, the heavens plural in our coming sessions. Some have fallen for um, 
the the doctrine of uh, annihilation of of existence after judgment annihilationism others have reduced the eternal lake of fire to temporal pain now a type of realized eschatology rather than the biblical location of the future lake of fire on earth that all will witness um, the pillars of the faith the biblical covenants if i was to ask the average Christian, especially in the UK, to give me an elevator pitch of the Abrahamic covenant, I would get a blank face. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible when it is foundational to the gospel thread? I place my hope in that covenant being fulfilled, and so does Abraham, by the way. <laughs> it means there's great confusion over over the, the physical and, and spiritual promises because we have kicked the natural sons of Israel out of the church thinking that we replaced them and I'll spend some more time on that in in a moment excuse me take theology proper the study of God God's attributes are sliced and diced commonly focusing on our favorite like love God is love and then we pretend that his other attributes, such as wrath, are kept back in the Old Testament. So our understanding of God himself is skewed. It's a question of who is it that we worship? It's a pretty big deal. Uh, God's, ways and sovereignty, God's ways and sovereignty. We've uh, developed a, an individual mentality. And I'm sure, sure you've heard the phrase, it's about relationship, not religion, which isn't really true. See James 1. God, of course, deeply cares about your personal relationship, but actually God primarily works through corporate bodies, family, church, peoples, nations. Because we've made faith individual other than an event on Sunday, we've, 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 we're kind of inclined to remain at the cross, right, or, or, or the tomb, and we don't look further than that. We don't look at the, the national judgments and, and restoration and so forth. God's sovereignty and providence is universal, but countering today's culture, God is also particular in choice. God chooses individuals, sexes, people groups, specific locations for specific purposes. For example, God has, has chosen or will choose a number of nations that will exist forever, and Israel as the chosen people are the key component. It's the scandal of particularity. Now, perhaps most tragic of all is our version of biblical hope. Uh, speaking to uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Richard Dawkins commented on the Christian afterlife, and this is what he said. Sitting up in heaven for trillions of years, how unbelievably boring it would be. Of course, he, he has a habit of attacking Christianity, but the point is that he's done a lot of research and yet has a very wrong idea of biblical hope, but it's a reflection of mainstream Christianity with our abstract hope, sitting on a cloud you know, with a harp for eternity, which is utterly ridiculous, unbiblical. And it just comes back to this, this Greek worldview, striving for this super spiritual existence. Now, it, it is true that disembodied spirits of, of believers are sent to heaven when we die. Um, but the, the eternal hope is one of a resurrected body inheriting the earth with their king. Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. He taught his disciples to, to pray your kingdom come on earth. We're given little about the lifestyle of believers in heaven for good reason. And yet we have masses of passages that detail the future earthly kingdom. Our hope should align with the good news of the coming kingdom, not our temporal home in heaven. Now, it hasn't always been this way. Interestingly, George Ladd, writing out of California in 1964, said this. Evangelical Christians have been so exercised with the eschatological or futuristic aspects of the kingdom of God 
that it is often seized to have an immediate relevance to the contemporary Christian life, except as a hope. Thus, the very term the kingdom of God to many Christians means, first of all, the millennial reign of Christ on earth. So in the 60s across the pond, they rightly had a future kingdom perspective, but Ladd points out the the misapplication. Now today in the UK, the reverse is true. We think the kingdom is already here with a surpassing destructive application, in my opinion. Now Ladd does add that in England, consistent eschatology, uh, a term for exclusive future, uh, for, for exclusive future kingdom view, um, has never taken deep root. Now, while Ladd focuses on addressing the, the misapplication of his day, he rightly adds that this is not to minimize the futuristic aspect of the kingdom. The Old Testament prophets constantly looked forward to the day of the Lord when God would establish his reign on earth. It is also clear in the Gospels that the kingdom of God belongs to the age to come and is an eschatological blessing. So, if people aren't applying the kingdom correctly, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I have never, I have never sat in a church and heard a sermon on the messianic kingdom. It's wiped from its future context and applied to the present, losing sight of the true hope of God's climactic resolution. Again, this is what we term realized eschatology, realizing that the future, the eschatological events in the here and now. And this is nothing new. In the early church, false teachers were saying that the resurrection has already happened. That is realized eschatology, bringing the future hope of the resurrection at the return of Jesus into the present. Paul described this realized eschatology as irreverent babble that will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. And this gangrenous framework mutates into doctrines such as dominion theology that says that we build the kingdom now and eventually take over world governments set for Jesus's return akin to uh, you know Constantine's army no the bible says the opposite the bible says that the things will get worse that in the last days perilous times will come and it's in that time of distress for Jacob Israel that he shall be saved out of it when the king returns. We fail to develop a biblical understanding of suffering in this age before the glory to come. Jesus said, wasn't it clearly predicted that Messiah should have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? We follow this pattern for to, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The darker this world becomes, the brighter the hope of the gospel of the kingdom shines. Peter said, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is when we get our resurrected bodies or glorified bodies and Jesus rules the earth. And yet looking at many Christians today, you think that we've set our, our hope on the here and now. The gospel of the kingdom is profoundly richer than the fluffy language that we frequently prescribe it from a kingdom now perspective. Plain scripture depicting the restoration of Israel, the eternal capital of Jerusalem, Ezekiel's prophetic temple and so forth have been blown into complex metaphors. This over-spiritualized, indeed over-realized approach turns a wonderful message of restoration by a saving king into an intangible present reality that is unimpressive and seemingly irrelevant to its recipients. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. I believe we have cherished an arbitrary, reckless habit of interpreting first advent texts literally and second advent texts spiritually. 
I believe we have not rightly understood all that the prophets have spoken about the second personal advent of Christ any more than the Jews did about the first. A sobering statement. Add a further dose of today's culture shrouded in relativism, no absolute truth, pluralism, all religious paths is equally valid, have valid, hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, progressivism, social Darwinianism, and imagine the worldly product that we put out. God has a great plan for your life. Put your hand up and you get to go to heaven. In summary, we've done a Thomas Jefferson on it, cutting out the bits that we don't like, bloating it with ancient philosophy, stretching the storyline beyond recognition, infecting it with spiritual gangrene and replacing the central characters with ourselves, ultimately creating a God and a message that suits us, that reflects us, a Christianity that is comfortable and detached from reality. All doctrines are filtered through these ill-stricken frameworks. For example, how you how you frame the creation order determines your interpreter, interpretive view of home and church order, etc. Most in-house debates are, are arguments about symptoms of frameworks, not about the framework of the foundation itself. Now, let me just touch on a couple of these in more detail for uh, a moment, which are intrinsically linked uh, before turning to the pattern that Jesus and the apostles offered. Firstly, the centrality of Israel within redemptive history, and then the nature and the timing of the kingdom. The centrality of Israel. Most Christians in the UK today apply the prophecies of the restoration of Israel as metaphorical. They view the idea of an ethnic people who will return to their physical land ruled by the Messiah as too literal. They believe the body of believers who make up the church has replaced, replacement theology, has replaced the Israel of the Old Testament or fulfilled, fulfillment theology, the purposes of Israel uh, thus making them obsolete. Uh, replacement theology and its subtle but equally damaging derivative terms, uh, supersessionism, uh, fulfillment theology, covenant theology, and such like, according to Paul, is an arrogant belief system whereby Israel has been replaced by the so-called uh, true Israel or new Israel, thus spiritualizing every future reference to uh, the ethnic people, their land, and the, and the promises of the kingdom. And they assert that because because the new covenant through Jesus Christ supersedes the old covenant, Israel's blessings apply to themselves spiritually. <laughs> right? The church today, which is largely made up of Gentiles, is forever claiming Israel's blessings as their own, convenient, but then leave aside the curses for the Jewish people. In effect, Israel has been stripped of its ethnic identity and its election as a chosen people is void. They view the state of Israel and its ethnic people having no spe specific purpose in God's plan. And the primary fruit of these doctrines has been a broad misunderstanding of the covenants upon which the gospel is founded, shaping a context to allow anti-Semitism to flourish. It's quite possible that the Second World War would not have taken place had it not been for this widespread Gentile arrogance within the church. I heard a Jewish follower of Jesus once say, most Christians act like a Christmas tree, all fancy lights, but cut off at the root. We have contrived a very Gentile gospel, expunging the Jewish hope. The way that you look at Israel determines your gospel framework so dramatically that your, your faith can be placed in a very different kind of hope. But if this kind of replacement theology is correct, we would expect Israel just to fade away as a people. And instead, the opposite has happened. After 2,000 years, they are back in their land. And the tiny old city of Jerusalem is forever in the headlines. If they have no place, why is God drawing the world's attention to it? And he's drawing the church's attention to it. But most of us are self-blinding. You can't say that Israel, which is judged in 70 AD, but then not count the return to the land and the establishment of the state as a blessing. That Jesus 
didn't literally fulfill some of the things in the first coming, namely ruling as a king and restoring Israel, doesn't mean that we ought to spiritualize it in the present or that it was spiritually fulfilled in Christ. He literally fulfilled the prophecies of being beaten beyond recognition, hung on a cross and resurrected to life in Jerusalem. And he will literally fulfill the prophecies of the mighty warrior and king who rules the earth from Jerusalem. If Isaiah 53 is broadly literal, then so is Isaiah 54 to 66. We will see that Jesus's kingdom is intrinsically linked to Israel and that he will fulfill, he will literally fulfill his promises when he returns. In the New Testament, Israel is mentioned over 70 times, always meaning ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham known today as the Jews. Israel is spoken of as having an eternal future in the New Testament. In our Western context, we forget the Bible was written by men, predominantly two men. 40 plus authors were all men, all Jewish, with a possible exception of Luke. It is Israel-centric, Jerusalem-centric from Genesis to Revelation. All of the early church was Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. He's returning as a Jewish king. Several New Testament books, uh, Matthew, Hebrews, uh, Peter's epistles, James, they're written primarily to the Jewish Christian audience. We need not become envious of Israel's national calling and attempt to usurp her and replace her, but rather recognize that, that Gentiles, non-Jewish like me, were always in the plan to come alongside, not to replace, come alongside Israel. Now again, if you're a new Christian, don't worry if some of this stuff is just flying over your head. I prefer to just immerse people straight into the deeper end and then they, they learn to swim faster and then they start waving to people that have been in the shallow end for years. Um, <laughs> the kingdom. For me, the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. We will follow the threads of many themes throughout the series, uh, such as creation, order, covenant, atonement, uh, and so forth. Um, but the kingdom of God is the, the overarching theme that ties them all together. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. To understand the kingdom of God, we must understand the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Get the kingdom wrong, you get the good news of it, the gospel of it wrong. So what is a kingdom? The biblical word for kingdom can mean and be translated as dominion, reign, sovereignty, royal power, kingship, rule. Michael Vlack explains that the use of the term determines its meaning. He says, like any term, the meaning of kingdom in similar terms is not found primarily in the etymology or origin of the word, but in its usage. A kingdom, biblically speaking, is a physical domain, a people who dwell within it, who are ruled by a king. Simply put, a land, a people, a law with a lawgiver. Now, for a kingdom to function properly, the land must contain only rightful citizens, a righteous law, willing obedience of the people to the law, and a worthy king who is physically and presently reigning and ruling. It is a very real kingdom. Any attempt to draw abstract concepts of God's kingdom are aligning with Platonic thinking based on that, that ancient Greek philosophy. The kingdom will include political, social, agricultural, artistic, technological, architectural, animal, every aspect of life. No earthly kingdom throughout history since Adam has lived up to that biblical definition of a true and righteous kingdom. Only God ruling his creation with an honorable people can fulfill it. Now, for those of you that have been Christians a while, that should trigger in your mind questions about how you view the kingdom of God. Because if it doesn't match that biblical definition, because likely you, you view the kingdom as a present spiritual reality, then you're going to be surprised. And I hope, I hope, reinvigorate the passion for the gospel. 
we will discover that the kingdom of man on earth was lost, that God has promised to restore it. And the lion's share of the Bible describes God's patient and merciful dealings with man in accomplishing salvation of his creation. Friends, it, it appears that we are heading into a dark period of history. And I want you to know before things really get tough, that Jesus is not merely a figurative king of your life, exclusively connecting his universal people through an invisible network. He's a real king who will one day soon arrive in apocalyptic fashion, sit on a real throne in a real temple and establish his real kingdom on earth. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, presently, he's building his church, sealing future citizens of the kingdom. And our relationship with the king is one of spiritual prayer. But when Messiah King returns in glorious form, we will experience him in a very real way. We will see, smell, hear, worship, learn from, touch, know face to face. Our spirits should groan for that day. I recently read that the return of Jesus is spoken of in the New Testament more than 300 times. In 23 out of 27 books, in seven out of every 10 chapters, in one out of every 25 verses, God wants us to continually ponder and prepare for Jesus's return. God has staked his character upon covenantal promises that define the kingdom. The hope of the gospel is founded on these promises given to the patriarchs and detailed at length throughout the prophetic scriptures, patently clear from the descriptive imagery. The promised kingdom the Bible speaks of must be isolated into the impending context. For example, Isaiah describes people who once again live many hundreds of years before death is eradicated, children playing with wild animals, the Dead Sea transforming into fresh water abundant with life, the nations melting down their weapons to forge farming equipment, peace and true justice reigning throughout the earth, and Zion and her desert will be restored like the Garden of Eden. Chapter 51 of Isaiah describes the, the trans transformation of, of Zion, Jerusalem. It says this, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. The paradise of Eden was lost, but God will go from Eden to Zion and Zion will be restored in the likeness of Eden. This isn't fantasy. This is the good news of the future kingdom. The gospel is sparked in, in Eden in the third chapter of Genesis and is explicitly stated and developed throughout the Old Testament. Hear, hear the words of, of Isaiah 40. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Chapter 42 tells of a, a future time when Messiah redeems Jerusalem for everyone to see. Listen to this, one of my favorite passages. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
This is the good news. This is the good news. It's intrinsically connected to Zion and the salvation of the people of Israel. And God himself establishes the kingdom. The father says, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let me read just just one more from the prophet Joel. The Lord roars from Zion. From Jerusalem, his voice bellows out. The heavens and the earth shake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. He is a stronghold for the citizens of Israel. You will be convinced that I, the Lord, am your God, dwelling on Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy. Conquering armies will no longer pass through it. On that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the dry stream beds of Judah will flow with water. A spring will flow out from the temple of the Lord, watering the valley of acacia trees. (laughs) In the meantime, we preach Christ crucified because the cross made the way for the kingdom to come. Paul expounds, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The gospel does not change from Old Testament to New. It's the same gospel, the same good news, the same God revealing the same story throughout. In this series, we will encounter the mysterious plan introduced from that moment of the original sin in Eden, The promise of the seed in Genesis 3, the the promise to Abraham's offspring that I will give this land, the promise to David to establish the throne of his kingdom forever, the promise through the prophets speaking of the day of the Lord when God's Messiah would become the king of kings, restore Israel, judge the nation, set all things right, set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever. And through his kingdom will come the divine restitution of all things. The kingdom from God is decidedly future focus. And it's by grace, through faith in God, to deliver on those promises by those who lived before Messiah's first coming, that they will be saved. And by grace, through faith in God, to deliver on those same promises, all those that came after the cross will be saved. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Far from starting a new religion, Jesus proclaimed the same good news the patriarchs and the prophets spoke of, the restoration of the heavens and earth through his messianic kingdom. It would be the two distinct advents, first to to wear the suffering crown of thorns, and secondly to wear his kingly crown of glory that would mystify most Jews. Now we will uh, deal with all the objections regarding the timing of the kingdom such as Jesus saying uh, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It makes complete sense in in the broader context of Jesus's ministry but for a moment please consider this. After his resurrection Jesus appeared during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. After nearly six weeks of learning from the best teacher in the universe, what is the one question that his disciples ask at at the, at the graduation? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is a great question. They're not asking about the nature of the kingdom. There's an underlying assumption that the kingdom promises of the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled. Their question is not about the nature, but the timing of when it will arrive. If it had already arrived, they wouldn't have asked Jesus that question. Now, Jesus too does not correct or rebuke the premise of the question. He doesn't say, what on earth are you talking about? I've just spent 40 days telling you how we flipped the whole message and it's now transcended you know, into a super spiritual reality. No, he affirms their expectation of a future restoration of the kingdom of Israel and answers the question regarding the timing, saying, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus spoke at great length about his return and the preceding signs. Why is Jesus 
returning specifically to Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem mentioned the same number proportionally in the New as the Old, as the Old Testament? Why is the New Covenant promised to Israel? Why did God declare himself as the God of Israel? Why did the Father give the title to his son Jesus, the King of the Jews? When you begin to see it from an Israel-centric, future kingdom perspective, the gospel comes to life. Until, until the resurrection of the dead, until Satan is locked up, until the judgment of the nations, until Israel is redeemed, declared holy, restored, global peace and justice, and Jesus presently reigning from Jerusalem, the kingdom has not come. Lastly, we should follow the holistic pattern given by Jesus and the apostles. Uh, unfamiliar to most of us, it's been Jewish practice for thousands of years to follow a liturgical method of dividing the Torah, the teaching of the first five books of the Bible, into weekly portions. These uh, portions in Hebrew parasha are typically spread over a period of a year and are then subdivided into smaller portions for daily study. Now this parasha approach provides the foundation of the gospel message and understanding of God's ways and means. Now along with the Torah, the prophets and writings which make up the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, were also divided in the 6th century BC paired to weekly Torah readings called Haftarah. Now in Luke uh, chapter 4, when Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah by the attendant in the synagogue, he was simply to read that week's Haftarah, which followed the Torah parasha. Through the parasha, haftarah, and careful study of the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus will have formed a well-rounded Tanakhian worldview. This pattern Jesus gave in his life of developing a holistic approach in routine study, deeply rooted in, in the canon of scripture, is one that we should take heed. Now, on the road to the village of Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus demonstrates this comprehensive approach. Walking with two disciples, we read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Jesus didn't start in the middle of the story. He began from the beginning of the Torah written by Moses and then explained all the prophets and all the scriptures, the purpose of suffering in his first advent before his glorious return. So again, his pattern was covering the scriptures in a holistic manner so that they could understand the full story, even on the roadside. Now, the apostles followed in his footsteps. In the book of Acts, we read, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't cherry, cherry pick pet topics. He didn't preach half a story. He unashamedly preached and taught the whole story of God's plan and purposes. John starts his gospel with in the beginning, echoing, the, echoing Moses' opening of Genesis. In his second epistle, Peter asks us to count the millenniums of God's patience to express his all-encompassing perspective. Peter recognised that man's mocking of God's promises, daily struggles and so forth were symptomatic of our narrow view on our, on our own lifespan rather than viewing God's grand timeline. The writer of Hebrews demonstrates his, his big picture understanding, flowing from old covenant to new with the same storyline, the new facilitating and anticipating the same ending. Matthew begins his gospel with tracing the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus, expressing the, the continuity of the story and the grand theme of the seed. Mark, Luke, James, et al., they all demonstrate the continuity of the redemptive story. They are they're meticulous with the detail, but they frame it from the big picture gospel. They view their ministry as part of the overall storyline. And we'll see in a moment the apostles' public preaching reflected this. Peter instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, seldom 
prepared to reason for our faith. When presented with an unacquainted topic, out pops the panic verse. I don't know if you've heard this one. God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. And then it's swiftly followed by, so don't worry about that. Just trust in Jesus. And our response in effect is, don't worry about the start of the story or the end of the story. Let me tell you about Jesus. And consequently, we receive a response of absurdity. Jesus on the cross and out the tomb is meaningless without its wider gospel context. So the central chapter, the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour is the big how. Right? It's the key to access the hope. The historical narrative building up to and surrounding the how is the reason that we long for the hope. The hope being the target which drives all of Scripture. Thus, the how, the how of Jesus, requires the contextual reason to precede it, all while pointing forwards to the hope. Peter is asking of us to be prepared to give the reason of the hope, explain the reasoning behind the hope, the fall from a perfect world to an imperfect one, the curse that sin has placed upon the earth and mankind and so forth. Why would anyone accept a hope without a reason for it in the first place? Why would anyone crave a key to a door that they view as unnecessary. A problem is, is a prerequisite of a solution, right? <laughs> but frequently, our gospel witness bids to sell a vague hope based on the how without proper reasoning for it in the first place. Biblical hope, biblical hope of a world without pain and suffering, where every tear will be wiped away. The restoration of all things to a peaceful, fruitful planet with honest, honest rulers and idyllic life. And to the Jews specifically, the hope rests on the restoration of Israel and their Messiah as the King of Kings is in deep contrast to this age that people instinctively know has been corrupted. This hope of the good news tees up the question which begs the how of the good news. How is that possible? How can I be part of that world to come? And the answer you know is in Messiah's first coming. This means aligning with the original Jewish apocalyptic gospel of restoration and redemption before addressing the mystery of Messiah's suffering before glory. There is good news of what will happen because of what did happen. Now, for Jews and Gentiles, the response to the cross was different because their starting points were different. The apostle Paul explains, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And I touched on this recently, so I won't labor the point, but the Jews were already on the correct path. Their worldview broadly aligned with the scriptures, understanding the story of creation, Adam's sin, of course, Abraham, the Exodus, the prophets, the expectation of Messiah. The contention for the Jew lies with Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah, thus the, the cross was a stumbling block to continue the journey with God. Their assumption was that their Messiah would restore Israel at that, at that time rather than uh, die on a cross as their king. The regional Gentiles, on the other hand, would uh, hold various worldviews shaped by the earlier philosophies, myths, and, and religions. Uh, for them, even the idea of a Jewish Messiah was foolishness because it had no place within their framework of knowledge. And you know what, today it's not so dissimilar. If we commence evangelism with, with the cross of Christ to a Western Gentile audience or to a Jew without acknowledging their election as a chosen people, we're likely to receive a foolish response. Discipleship too that remains at the cross out of context will produce shallow roots. A different approach is required for Jew and Gentile. Uh, Stephen, in his Acts 7 sermon, uh, to the high priest and the crowds of Jews who, who listened on, initiated his spectators by retracing the story uh, from Abraham to Jesus, reasoning uh, that, that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Now, he need not describe the creator God because they're privileged to have the backstory already 
imprinted imprinted in their kind of mind maps if you like now the stoning of stephen speaks of their hardness of heart rather than his precise style now paul on the other hand when he when he uh, speaks to the greek philosophers he reaches further further back to the creation story they ask him may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears now highly aware they're not jewish right he reorientates his listeners reverting them to the beginning of the story upon which he lays out the real god on a new canvas the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth he said and then paul moves quickly to explaining that that from the first man adam came every nation and that the god of the bible is sovereign over them that his intention is that they should seek god and having overlooked their ignorance he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and only then having mapped out the whole timeline does he place the cross and the resurrection in context paul introduced the second coming before the first so jews who have a key component of the biblical worldview must discover that the the hebrew scriptures spoke of uh, jesus messiah whereas gentiles must completely transform their worldview from beginning to end to make sense of of the gospel the lord has given us this holistic approach to follow and yet rarely do we paint the grand synopsis in the setting of evangelism in our own personal study uh, or from the pulpit and the result is that students are left with the central chapter of the story without foundation of protology study of origins or clarity of biblical hope and then we wonder why so many grow cold both uh, jews and uh, gentiles require the whole framework to provide the context of the cross after all who starts a book halfway through and then reads a couple of sentences a day <laughs> so we're required to revisit the story so I hope I've convinced you uh, to some degree that our gospel message has been too narrow at the very least. Uh, we need to reclaim the true meaning of the kingdom and Israel's place within it. And the holistic gospel is required more than ever. The intention then of the series is to develop that big picture gospel, a richer, tangible gospel by reviewing redemptive history laid out in the Bible, concentrating on the defining events, including the creation, the fall of man, the flood, the confusion at Babel, the covenant, the cross, and the new heavens and new earth. And through this holistic approach, we will unveil the story of the Bible, discover the mysterious, glorious hope of the promised kingdom as proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. And this is, this is not chiefly an academic exercise. Working our way through the grand narrative develops a biblical worldview which, which informs our understanding of God's character and, uh, and redemptive ways and means, and therefore your relationship with him. A foundational framework in which to place uh, further study, a tool to defend your faith from, and you will have more confidence in proclaiming the gospel, no doubt. And a careful study of the, the scriptures that produces good theology is, in itself, an act of worship. Now, in terms of format and style, God chose to reveal his redemptive blueprint in a progressive manner throughout history. You may have heard the phrase uh, Old Testament concealed, New Testament revealed. And the mysteries are, uh, are revealed like a scroll unraveling according to historic realities. After all, this is how most stories are read. Therefore, we will generally follow a pattern of biblical theology, um, which is studying doctrines such as the kingdom of God, um, arranged according to chronology and historical background. Biblical theology helps us understand God's dealing with man throughout history and why God did it the way he did. Now, having said that, there will be spoilers because we can't wait until you know, 20 sessions or so later until we understand that something was talking about Jesus on the cross, for example. Uh, so we will, for the sake of clarity, um, pause and, and and take the necessary steps to to do uh, you know systematic theology on a subject um systematic theology is looking at what all of scripture says about about a topic now sometimes it will it will be more like narrative other times it may take the appearance of commentary or apologetics or preaching uh, the goal is not to 
The goal is not really to impress or remain within one style. The goal is to provide a, a biblical framework with whatever tool it takes. I don't expect you to absorb or understand all the information as we go or even, even agree with me on everything. Uh, but don't let that stop you. Uh, things will come together like one big jigsaw, hopefully. Now, sometimes we'll slow it down We'll focus in on, on a verse, perhaps. Um, other times we'll be skipping through passages. Sometimes we'll go wide. Other times we'll go deep. Sometimes it'll be like drinking milk. Other times chewing on a piece of red meat. Uh, we've got to be mature about this. Um, I'm not here to entertain. Um, we're here to learn and to grow. And I'll try to bring in a fair amount of quotes as well, uh, just to show that everything is backed up. Uh, anything that I say is backed up by world-class scholarship, and uh, I hope you have a Bible on hand. In terms of the number of sessions, you know, I really just don't know. Uh, this was originally going to be a book that I'm chipping away at for years and years. Um, I could take the time out and publish it, but I just feel that time is short and I want to get the gospel out there. So while it doesn't really translate from, from book to video, if the Lord tarries a little longer, then uh, perhaps I can edit and publish that separately. Um, but the videos will be padded out way more and will go down rabbit holes. So I really can't put a number on it. It will take as many as needed uh, going through the main storyline. And hopefully we'll have some fun with it. Um, now, before we get straight into Genesis 1, next time we're going to look at worldviews and hermeneutical basics. So um, I best get preparing that. Um, I hope that's been helpful. I hope it has drawn you into some degree. Um, see you soon.